0: The thing that that you learn, though, about building simple mobile tools is just how little anyone wants to think about any of their decisions, and you have to greatly simplify. And so by creating a set of simple inputs with obvious choices, you can make something that's easy to use for hundreds of thousands of people.
1: Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Vaughn bon Koo. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? On today's show, our guest is Daniel Berka. He's a product manager and designer who focuses on solving complex global health problems in simple ways. He's a director of product and design at a great nonprofit called Resolve to Save Lives. He spends the majority of his time working on an open source project called Simple.org. Simple, used by thousands of hospitals in India, Bangladesh, and Ethiopia to manage about 1 million patients with hypertension. In his prior life, Daniel and his business partner, Kevin Rose, they started an incubator company called Milk, which was sold to Google. A year later, he went on to become a design partner at Google Ventures for five years, where he worked for a huge variety of companies like Flatiron Health, ZipLine, Farmer's Business Network, and Blue Bottle Coffee. This year, Daniel also started the Open Source Health Icons Project to provide free icons to healthcare projects around the world. Check it out at healthicons.org. This past week, we got some amazing news. We found out that we made Fast Company's list of the nine best podcasts to make you more creative I was shocked. We started this podcast literally a year ago today. My producer, Rob Giese, and I started this as a pandemic hobby. We don't make any money off of this podcast, but we really wanted to explore the question of how might we design healthier lives and bring on amazing guests and tap into their brains. Thank you for listening and supporting us the way that you do it is to tell others about this podcast and you've been doing that and to subscribe and more importantly to rate us on apple podcast and leave a comment that is the way for others to find out about what we're about so thank you thank you for supporting thank you for helping us to make that amazing list I know you're going to enjoy my conversation with uh, Daniel Berka. I had such a good time talking to him. Daniel Berka, welcome to Design Lab. Thanks for being on the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's, I'm a big fan, so it's a real you know, pleasure to be here.
1: So you grew up in the idyllic place of Prince Edward Island in Canada, and I heard you started a design agency in high school doing my research. That is so crazy. How did that happen? Tell us about that.
0: So I grew up in a rural place in Canada. So I grew up outside of a place named Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. So Charlottetown is only 35,000 people. And I didn't even grow up in the city. I was one of the country kids. And I was really lucky in high school to have this great graphic arts teacher named Barbara Beauvais. And so I learned a little bit about design using Corel Draw and these old school kind of graphics tools in the late 1990s. And when summer came around, I wanted to get a summer job. And all my friends were doing things like scooping ice cream or working at a coffee shop, or it's a real touristy kind of place. So lots of those types of jobs. And none of that really appealed to me. And my mother actually... Uh, convinced my friends and I to form a little design agency together and helped us get a couple of government contracts to get started. This is Canada. So it's a little bit communistic. And we launched a design agency in the late 1990s. And then we brought in a few other friends and, and we turned to a real thing. And 22 years later, that company called Silver Orange is still in business doing great work. And I'm Increasingly, the older you get, the the more proud I am to have helped start something that has stood the test of time and, and lasted that long, which is really unusual for a design agency.
1: How do you have the tools as a high school student to to do this? You just you studied it or just like I I just take it, take me a little bit through you as a high school student and being able to do this.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the really cool things about the web, and you know, I'm one of the first generations of designers and technologists who grew up primarily doing web work, right? I didn't predate the web, is you could learn just by looking at how other people did things, right? So I was mostly at the beginning interested in writing and then interested in writing front-end code and doing design. I was really fortunate. I'm privileged enough that we had a computer in our house that I was able to play with. And I had a stolen copy of Curl Draw and Photoshop on it, which I later you know, paid for when we started making money. <laughs> and then we were looking at what other web people were doing at the time, and you were able to right-click and view source. And at the time, like if you viewed source on an HTML page, it was clean. You could actually read the code because everything was so basic back then. And so we learned how to make websites. And we had a couple of friends who were into computer programming. And so we built these really basic dynamic websites using ColdFusion and Microsoft Access as the database, who I think some of your listeners will will nod along to this This is some old school web development, but we really learned the basics and we were really lucky. We were actually, the first few projects were digitizing museum collections. So we worked with this museum that was, this is going to sound ridiculous. It was the pit. History of the Potato Museum, because it's a big potato growing (laughs) region, and it has a 20-foot potato outside the front door. And we helped to take all their photography and all the great writing they had in the museum and make a website for them. And then the next summer, we did another museum, and we worked with this fisheries museum on digitizing their collection. And it worked really well. We managed to learn a lot of things, and then we started getting corporate clients and starting to learn to run like a real company.
1: I love that. So you made this jump from potatoes to Silicon Valley. You work at some small companies like Google or something like that. And then a couple of years ago, you made a jump into global health. So you're the director of product and design at a nonprofit called Resolve to Save Lives. And your current project, you're working on something called simple.org. So what is uh, simple.org?
0: So I work with the former director of the Centers for Disease Control under President Obama, this guy named Dr. Tom Frieden. When Tom left the CDC, he decided to focus on two things, epidemic preparedness, which obviously was prescient, but probably should have started a little earlier. And the other is cardiovascular health. And we're focused primarily on hypertension. If you think of hypertension, you're just like, oh, it's high blood pressure. Like really common one in five adults and India or America have hypertension, but it's the leading indicator for heart attacks and strokes. And hypertension alone kills more people than all infectious diseases combined. But it doesn't get a lot of focus because we all think like well, like heart attacks and strokes are normal, right? Mm-hmm. We all have an uncle who died from a heart attack, and we all oh, that's just life. But life doesn't have to be that way. And so, resolve to save lives. The the not for profit I work for is helping countries like India, Bangladesh, Ethiopia, and Nigeria to scale massive hypertension control programs. And to do that, you need to do a lot of public health things, drug procurement, choosing a treatment protocol, training an army of healthcare workers, all the big building blocks of a healthcare program. But in the end, you need a system of record. So you're able to see what's working and what's not working and where things aren't working and not working. And typically for an NCD program, a non-communicable disease program are done on paper, it's really slow feedback loops and really difficult to manage at scale. And you're talking about millions of patients. So Tom pitched me when I was still at Google with this idea, and I left to join him to create a digital record system that's used by healthcare workers in low and middle income countries to record a longitudinal record of patients with hypertension to drive feedback loops into a huge public health program. So you can manage the program.
1: How did you make that jump? Google ventures is like a sexy thing. You're investing in like cool companies that are going to change the face of the planet. And then you are like, I want to build electronic record system for hypertension, which does not sound as sexy. It, it's cool to me. I was like, we need that so much. And what, compelled you to, to do that?
0: Um, it's, it's a little hard to answer this without sounding sanctimonious. So I'm not going to try. And obviously I've got a lot of privilege to be able to leave a very well-paying job and, and to do this. But basically I was working in venture capital, the, the near the top end of venture capital, and there's a huge amount of money sloshing around right? We were investing about half a billion dollars every year into startups. And when you do that, you make lots of money. Like I, It was a great job. It was cushy. It was comfortable. You get to work with really interesting startups, including a lot of healthcare startups. We were doing about half of our money into healthcare startups. And I see a lot of people, including my friends, who are staying in the game in Silicon Valley because it's comfortable, because it's interesting and challenging. Mm-hmm. But I'm in this place where... I can wake up in the morning and do anything. It's it's really lucky. I'm I want to be very aware that this is a very fortunate position to be in. But when you can wake up in the morning and do anything, like do I want to churn at the wheel of capitalism and make more money? That's, you know, not really what drives me. And Tom, when I met Dr. Frieden through one of the CEOs in the Google Ventures portfolio,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Tom pitched me and he said, "Our goal is to save 100 million lives in 30 years." from cardiovascular disease and to help prevent epidemics. And you hear a lot of ambitious shit when you're in Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah. And then you hear this and you're like, it's extremely ambitious and it's not just for wealthy people, right? This isn't making cool yeah. widgets for that rich people can buy. This is trying to scale enormous health programs. So it's got all the, the cool challenges, right? It's massive scale. It has the opportunity to do a lot of good in the world. And it's really hard. Other people have tried to build digital systems for TB or HIV or hypertension, and they mostly fail for various reasons. So the road is littered with skeletons. This to the right type of person is freaking exciting, right? Because you're just like, oh, that's really hard, really necessary. Like, maybe I could do that.
1: Oh, You're, you're speaking my love language here, Ed. I, I want to be fully transparent. A lot of times I roll my eyes at rock stars like you leaving Silicon Valley and go, "Hey, I'm going to take on global health. I'm going to take on public health." And but looking at your work, it, I, I think you're doing it the right way. And how is your what you're building at SimpleDoc or different from those skeletons that I've personally seen a lot of uh, these tools being developed, and they just like, don't work? and they don't get adopted, they don't get implemented.
0: Right. So again, I've been in this for three and a half years. I'm not going to claim to be the world expert. But from the perspective that I've seen, there there are a number of reasons why these things fail. The first is, and this is probably why you're rolling your eyes, is tech people go in and think it's a technology problem. This is not a technology problem. This is a public health problem. But the public health teams need good technology. So you have to like lower your ego and be a support team. Like you can't put an app in a bunch of healthcare workers' hands and fix hypertension. (laughs) But you need the app to work. So that's number one. Number two is funding. You see in in public health all over the place, these things are severely under. If you came to a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley and said, I'm going to make a tool for healthcare workers in 50,000 facilities to manage 40 million patients with hypertension, and I need a million dollars a year, they would laugh at you. I mean, it's a tiny amount of money. And in public health, they're like a million dollars. Like, you're crazy.
1: Jackpot. We hit the public Um, health lottery for a million (laughs) dollars. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. Um, so there's somewhere in between these two things where you obviously need to be use money wisely, but you have to fund it sufficiently to succeed. And then the third thing, and I think this is the biggest reason, is almost none of the tools that you see are designed in a user-centric way. And this I think is really interesting and probably kind of relevant to your book. Is in public health, there's this interesting challenge. In, in public health, you've got a few different types of users: patients, number one, right? You need to design the overall system, not that just the technology, but the overall system that you design has to be patient-centric. Mm-hmm. In the case of hypertension, that means treating patients as close to their homes as possible Mm. and ideally sending them home with enough medication that they're not frequently making clinical because it's a chronic disease. You don't feel like you've got hypertension and like you come back, you travel an hour on a bus to stand in line for three hours at a clinic. If you have to do that once a month, you will fall out of care. Yeah. And this is a big problem in a place like India. Then your next user is the healthcare workers. Almost none of the big public health programs really listen to healthcare workers very much. They're mostly driven by health experts who live in the capital city. Mm. And that's a huge problem, right? Because the health experts, they they might have been clinicians in the past, but it's a long time since they've worked in a rural hospital and they forget what it's like. In India or Bangladesh, India's got a typical clinic visit, it's about three minutes. In Bangladesh, it's closer to two. Those healthcare, the healthcare worker themselves didn't come to work to do data entry. They came to work to treat the patient who sits across the table from them. And if they've got two or three minutes for a clinical visit, if you are asking them to spend more than about 20 seconds doing data entry, you're interrupting patient care significantly, right? It's a big deal in America having to do EMR data entry. You a 10 or 15 minute visit. You cut that down to two minutes to introduce yourself to the patient, listen, treat the patient appropriately and counsel them. I mean, your American doctors just like roll their eyes. They're like, how can you possibly treat a patient correctly? But then the next user is the public health people at the center, and they're really interested not in each patient, but in the entire patient population. And they're looking at thousands or millions of patients at a time. And so the real balance in the technology is to satisfy that the system works for patients, the tool works for the healthcare worker within the constraints of their job, and gives them feedback loops for them and their patients, but also satisfies the public health need of understanding what's happening in the overall system at the big picture population level. And that balance is the thing we struggle with every single day. And I think most teams fail at one of those arms.
1: I, I love this mindset that you I mean, these kind of like principles that, that you laid out. I I wish someone had those principles when they were creating the EHR record system and for America because this was supposed to be a, a time saving tool, but now it's one of the number one or number two reasons why doctors experience burnout because we become data entry clerks. How do you avoid running into the same pitfall when you're working in very low resource settings like India, Bangladesh, Ethiopia.
0: The nice constraint. So we set ourselves a constraint that we have 20 seconds or less. And we measure that very diligently. So we have quantitative metrics in the the software itself and we've got we do a lot of qualitative analysis by sitting in clinics, listening to healthcare workers and watching them work. That's honestly a little bit pulled out of my butt, but if you watch a healthcare worker working and they see a hundred patients a day, they'll see a hundred patients in a single day. If you do something over and over again, even if it only takes 20 seconds, a hundred times a day, that's as much as you can ask of a person. Hmm. And so if you set yourself the constraint of time, then you work backwards from, okay, what's the most important data for the healthcare worker to treat the patient correctly and for the public health program to see kind of key information to make big level decisions. In the case of hypertension, what you really want to do is know who this patient is, right? Because if you are treating them over time, you need to be able to find them the next time. Place like Bangladesh, you know, it's really common for a region to have four or five common surnames. And people aren't carrying a a driver's license or a common ID. So that's a tricky problem to do quickly. And then we ask as little as possible after that, a few basic medical history questions in a yes, no format Hmm. when you're enrolling the patient. And then at each follow-up visit, you look them up quickly. And then you ask for a blood pressure and the current medications and when they should follow up next. With that information, we can drive the entire program what we see is a lot of public health programs, they ask interesting questions. Well, wouldn't it be nice to know X? Wouldn't it be interesting if we could graph Y? F that. (laughs) I don't want any interesting things. I want only the most required things or else healthcare workers will just stop using it. Or they'll enter dummy data and then you've got garbage in, garbage out.
1: I'm feeling so guilty because as a researcher, I'm thinking, oh yeah, can we just add on a couple of more questions? Because this will make an amazing research study if if we can do that. But if you multiply those couple of questions into the intake form on the app, it's going to add, it may only add a a couple of seconds, but over time, it's hours, days, weeks of unnecessary clerical, clerical data entry for frontline workers.
0: That's absolutely true. And then the other interesting thing is it influences training time. So training, so we added 850 clinics and hospitals in the last 30 days. Like, can you imagine the training effort of that? So this is, we work with the the World Health Organization in India. They manage the program in India and along with the Indian Council of Medical Research. And they trained in 850 facilities in 30 days. If your software takes more than about an hour and a half to train, then all of a sudden you have to like do crazy amount of organizational, you know, um, activities to rent hotel space, bring people out of their jobs. It becomes a huge operational nightmare. Every question we add adds training time too. So yeah. our goal is to keep it as basic and simple as possible, which is why we called it simple. Um, it's seriously the greatest branding I've ever done in my life. and uh, and it makes it easy to train, easy to easier to treat patients. It's got a myriad of benefits.
1: When we had our install of Epic, which is the largest uh, EHR system, days of training for the clinical staff, Epic took over f- entire floor of a building and on-site staff twenty four seven with the implementation because, it's so hard to use, and there's been times, often where I feel like throwing a cup of coffee at my computer because it's so difficult to use. But I, I hear what you're saying because, the, the, the I think we underestimate the the hours and just trauma from going through these training of, of implementing these new tools. And you're doing it at such scale. Like I don't understand how that scale is so big. Like how are you able to do that? Because it's just, it's mind boggling.
0: I mean, every state in India is essentially a country. We're in a few states, we're expanding to every district in West Bengal, 90 million people in West Bengal. We're expanding across Bangladesh right now. There's 160 million people in this tiny little country. It's the most densely populated country in the world. So, you know, we're a yeah, we're expanding across India, and it's just a massive country with a massive population. We're helping to treat about a million patients right now. That's still a drop in the bucket. There are about two hundred million hypertensive patients in India, but there's a long way to go. And so you look at this, and in some ways, good scale. I think we've shown that this isn't just a pilot project, and that this can work at a scaled level. But we still have a long road to go. I think we're at the hundred yard line of of a A marathon.
1: Do you think something like this could be used in the U.S.? Because like, I want something like this for public health in in, in the U.S.
0: You know, I've actually talked to the New York City Health Department about this a little bit. Tom, who I, I work for, used to be the Commissioner for Health in New York City. And I think a tool like Simple, it obviously doesn't do very much, right? It's very basic. But if you were running an NCD program in the community, which is where we should be running non-communicable disease programs, for, especially for hypertension and diabetes, I think a tool like Simple, if you made it HIPAA compliant and, and focused on some of the, the data privacy issues, could be very appropriate because you could run a clinic in a church basement, for instance, once a month, run a, have a, a registered nurse. Mm-hmm. run a, a clinic in a church basement the parishioners blood pressures and sugars distribute medications there i think there is potential for such simple tools within maybe narrow areas in in america uh, when you get into the billing issues when you get into the kind of the whole health issues because obviously human bodies are very complicated as simple does extremely narrow range of things
1: i Wish I had something like this in what I've been working on the past year. I've been part of a team working with the city of Philadelphia, running mobile vaccine and testing sites in the city of Philadelphia. So we've tested over 10,000 Philadelphians. We've delivered about 3,500 vaccines literally in parking lots of churches, on the streets, in schools. But it is a pain. To set up these mobile clinics you would think it's simple of like hey we're just giving someone a vaccine who is not vaccinated but what we actually have to do is we have to set up uh epic so we have to bring computers laptops we have to set up a mobile like wi-fi station so these specific computers that are that are supplied by the hospital can use it and it takes longer to register someone who wants a vaccine didn't actually go the simple act of, I'm going to give you a vaccine. It is a logis- It's been a logistical challenge to do this. And I was like, I wish I had something like this because we don't need, I don't need a full operating system to deliver a vaccine. It's been so I, frustrating. I don't disagree
0: with you. I, I think it's really interesting in some ways. Like I'd love to get your opinion on this. In many ways, the things we record in an EHR are, are bookkeeping. In a way that doesn't benefit the clinician and doesn't benefit the patient. Maybe it's important in some cases for billing, obviously. But even in India, a lot of the systems you see, it's not trusting the clinicians to treat the patients correctly based on their education, but it's like, okay, we're going to force you through these 15 steps to make sure that you treat the patient exactly according to protocol instead of just letting the clinician treat the protocol and then recording the key data along the way that they'll be able to use at the next visit to treat the patient correctly. Because you could cut down so much data entry if you really focused on what was key for clinical care at the next visit. Not today, like like a patient, for instance, in a typical hypertension program, they'll record serum creatinine labs. Mm -hmm. That's important for treating the patient if they have a serum creatinine lab. But they're carrying the paper with the lab results on it. The patient has it in their hand. You don't have to put it into the computer to treat the patient. Yep. But it's like some record-keeping system for some central government so they know that like you had the serum creatinine lab in your hand. Instead of just a checkbox that says, yep, yeah. I checked it. But it's almost like a lack of trust in some ways.
1: I, I, I hear you. And it's... Oh, I want... <laughs> I I'm like gonna, in
0: your instance in the COVID lab. Yeah. Like, what are you entering that just feels extraneous that you wish you could just strip out?
1: A lot of things that we have to ask because it goes into the EHR of the social, social security number, address, information. These are all wave. Like, you don't need, we don't need to collect that information, but we have to ask it. And if they do, we, we have to input it. But then we have to, uh, the registration person has to jump through all these hurdles. And it takes a lot of time to be able to do that. And and they're hard stops. So you kind of have to go through this whole thing. It's not needed at, at all. And it's terribly frustrating because we have to work within the constraints of this EHR system and for documentation. And it becomes very laborious, adds so much time. Right. Yeah, it sounds I want to jump threads and talk about this cool project you're working on, uh, Health Icons. I've been waiting for something like this for years. Tell us about that. So,
0: I helped start an open source icons project called healthicons.org. And the genesis for this, I'm starting to work in Nigeria. And instead of using Simple for the cardiovascular health program, we're using another open source tool that's already really popular in Nigeria called DHIS2, which is an open source project out of the University of Oslo. DHIS2 is really cool in a lot of ways, and I'm really looking forward to using it with with our team in Nigeria. Um, One of the shortcomings of this software, and I'm smiling because it's not the most important thing in the world. But the icons are brutal. Like they look like they're from like a painting program made for Windows 3.1. And I was looking at these icons and I was like, oh man, I could make these better. And I cloned the repo to my own laptop and I pulled out all the SVGs for the the icons. And I started redesigning them. And I got about 20 icons in and I was like, man, this is a lot. There are about 900 icons, I think, uh-huh. in the in the set. And so put all the icons in Figma and shared the Figma document, which is really cool because it's easy to collaborate. And then I posted on Twitter and I said, who wants to help me redesign all these icons? They're All your work is going to be open source. You can't keep any ownership over any of it, but we'll put it online somewhere. And... We went through and redesigned all these icons. About a dozen volunteers jumped in and it was really cool. We have created a Slack channel and we drew all these icons. And now we're just adding to the icon collection. And there's this giant corpus of health-related icons.
1: I, I love it because I give a lot of presentations and I'm always looking for icons and for... And then there wasn't a good source out there. And I was like, why doesn't this exist? And then bam, it, it showed up and people could find all these open source icons. You have a website, healthicons.org. Is that correct? That's it. Cool. I I read a couple of essays on that you wrote doing my research on you. You posted one on Medium and where you say everyone needs a design mindset. What do you mean by that?
0: Oh man, yeah, that was a bit of a controversial article. Yeah. I think I said in the title, everyone is a designer. Yes. Quite a few designers got quite yeah. upset. I like you rephrased it to, to to say what I really meant, uh, Bon, which is that everyone needs a design mindset. I just I don't think this is even very controversial. If you want great design to come out of your organization, whether you're an enterprise networking software company or a health startup or a little app for sharing pictures with your friends. You can't just have design as a practice live within people with design in their titles. Because what you'll do is you'll create beautiful mockups in your design program of choice and you'll hand them off at the pass to some engineers. And in the end, you'll see that your product at the end may not have a great user experience. So I think there's a really good example that when you're watching Netflix at home and the buffering icon comes up and it starts having a spinner and it pauses your show, that is a significant user experience moment that was chosen by an engineer. Some engineer said when quality goes below X, stop everything and bring up a spinner. I bet a designer had nothing to do with the original choice there. If you go to, say, slack.com, if you go to slack.com and you go to buy Slack, the pricing on that purchasing page is a design decision. Not just the design of that page, but like, what is the actual price? How do we actually, do we let people have a free version and then get them to pay later? Is it a subscription? Is it, these are design choices. And if you're not thinking of this as your user experience, then your team is your design team is just wallpapering over the cracks mm-hmm. and you're doing your best with like what was handed down to you by other people and i'm not suggesting that designers should make all the pricing decisions or choose the set the constraints for buffering But what they need to do is sit down with the CFO and understand why pricing decisions are made the way they are and and talk about how this affects the user experience. So everyone's making the decision from a user experience standpoint. They need to sit next to that engineer who's Creating the buffering system for Netflix and think, okay, how can we do this in a way that like enhances the user experience rather than detracts from it?
1: I think you could apply that same sort of same sort of principle to healthcare because at the end of the day, healthcare is a service delivery business, and yes. when we think of we're delivering a service, what do we? Th- it's what is the experience of the humans undergoing that service and. So everyone, whether you're a physician, a nurse, the registration person, to the administrator, that you we're designing experiences for our patients. And if we don't have that mindset, that experience sucks. <laughs> Often in healthcare, that is the worst experience someone can actually go through in their lives. And especially I work in the emergency room. and when you end up in the emergency room, it's already the worst day of your life, probably, because something bad happened to you where you need to seek urgent and emergent care. And I don't think we have, I wish we had this mindset of like, well, how can we deliver uh, that best experience for uh, that human who's suffering and that everyone has that sort of mindset?
0: Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I don't love the term service design. It just always seems kind of vague to mm-hmm. me, but healthcare mm-hmm. is service design. Yeah, And I think so few people remember what it's like to come in the door of the ER when you don't know what's happening, who you should be talking to, how to find a glass of water for your suffering relative- and like, in some ways, like in, in our group, we do a bunch of exercises for the engineering and design and product teams to, to keep everybody in the right mindset. One is obviously observing real clinical care. But another thing we do once a quarter is we call it uh, PHC simple. And what we do is we set up a primary health clinic in an office, and we've been doing it virtually with the lockdown. But we set up a clinic in the office, and each of us gets to play a character. So one of us is the doctor, one of us is the nurse, somebody's at the checking counter at the front of the the hospital, and then everybody else is patients. And we create a long line of patients, because that's really typical in India. And we even tell a few people just to be jerks and like complain about the long line and how long they're waiting. And then you get a sense when you're trying to take someone's blood pressure and write down their information and document information in the app, you get a sense that like no one is only caring about the software. The software is one small part of an overall experience and the healthcare worker is like burdened with juggling the phone and the papers and like the pay, trying to pay attention to the patients. the the information needs to get from this place to the next place. And it's a nice kind of safe environment where obviously patients can't, real patients aren't involved, where we get to like understand this. And I'd love to see in an ER, for instance, that like a couple of times a year, like they should roll you in on a stretcher with like a broken hip and say, you're a 90-year-old man with a broken hip and like your family's with you, like, What's sixth experience like? They just parked you in the hallway and you're waiting for an ER doc, like, but you don't know how long for, like, and you'll get, you'd get a much better sense to remember what it's like to come in that door for the first time. It's so hard to remember what it's like to be the first time in an experience once you're, you've been through it a thousand times.
1: So hard. Right. I love that empathy building exercise. That, that's great. It's so hard to put myself in the shoes of my patients because I'm in chaos every day and I almost have the script when I see patients. I go, I'm really sorry that you've had to wait for so long. I have no idea how they how much they waited. I mean, they probably waited a long time. I'm sure they did. And but it just forces me to it's a trigger to remember like this human has been waiting a long time to see me. Sometimes it's eight hours that they're waiting. It is it is a long and I it's like the script that I have to remind it's a trigger to go, this human has been waiting. And I, I love that exercise. I, oh gosh, there's so much I want to talk about, but I wanted to, you know, you've had so many rich experiences over your like 20 year career. You've worked at Google Ventures. You've contributed to like one of my favorite books, Design Sprint, when you're at Google Ventures. You've contributed to big things like the platform Slack. And how do you feel like maybe you could, Pick out some of these experiences you've had and how they helped you to think about working in the global health space when these are some of the biggest and most complicated problems on the planet that we're trying to face right now. And how did that kind of help you in the current work that you're doing?
0: That's a, that's a great question. There's a few experiences that really benefited. One is I, in 2004, I got to work with Mozilla on the Firefox brand. And uh, John Hicks, myself and a team of other people all volunteered and worked on the Firefox brand. And I got to work with Mitchell Baker, who runs Mozilla. And the way that Mozilla a not-for-profit approaches their work is really inf- influential to me. And at the time, it looked like Mozilla was in a, a war with Microsoft over Internet Explorer, because Internet Explorer was the dominant browser. And when you talk to Mitchell and the rest of the Mozilla team, they were rooting for Microsoft. They, all they cared about was making the internet better. And whether that was by improving Microsoft's browser to be more standards compliant, or by getting more adoption of Firefox, which was a standards compliant browser, that was their entire goal. And they genuinely meant it. Like when they sent birthday cakes to the Microsoft team, when the, during product, the dot releases of Internet Explorer, they genuinely meant it. And that to me was really influential. And when I think about work on hypertension, my goal isn't to make simple ubiquitous. Mm. My goal is to have more patients treated well for hypertension. And so whether that's DHIS2 or simple or EPIC, I really don't care. It's the appropriate tool for the, the program. I mean, design sprints were really useful. So I didn't invent design sprints. Jake Knapp and and Braden Cowitz and John Zeratz really were already using design sprints when I came to Google Ventures. And to be honest, I kind of thought they would... It <laughs> sounds so gimmicky. It's like, solve any problem in five days or less.
1: Well, tell us the background. What What is a design sprint?
0: Yeah, so design sprint is... I mean, let's be honest. A design sprint is a a packaging of design thinking ideas, like those that came out of IDEO and and other great organizations. But it's a five-day process where you bring together a diverse team. So not just designers. You've got uh, decision makers and designers and engineers, and you come together for a five-day project where you unpack a problem, you ideate on how to solve it, you prototype a bunch of solutions and choose the best ones. And then the most important thing is you prototype the solution and then test it with real users. So you go from quickly figuring out what you're solving to trying to solve it, to seeing if you actually solved it. And it's not a way to get certainty. It's a quick process, but it's a way to get directional certainty about whether or not your solution works. And the the project I work on now, Simple, actually started as as a design. I volunteered with Dr. Frieden and had a team from India and some other public health people. We created a prototype that we tested in Maharashtra that showed a lot of promise. And so that turned into Simple later. So that was really influential.
1: That is so cool.
0: (laughs) I think the other thing that was really influential was working on consumer internet. I worked on a bunch of things that like aren't nearly as important as what I work on now. Like I worked on an app called Oink at oink.com a while ago that was like a mobile application for rating things in like places. So like what's the best hot dog in Chicago or what's the best I don't know like like gym in in a city. And it was a bit of a competitor to Foursquare for instance. Mm-hmm. And The thing that that you learn though, about building simple mobile tools is just how little anyone wants to think about any of their decisions. Mm -hmm. And you have to greatly simplify. And so by creating a set of simple inputs with obvious choices, you can make something that's easy to use for hundreds of thousands of people. We had quite a few users when we, we sold this company to Google. And uh, it sounds goofy that something like that would apply to healthcare, but we do take a consumer mindset to simple. This, like when I was talking about being able to train it in less than an hour, that's not a typical healthcare mindset. In, In healthcare, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, don't worry, we'll just write a manual, everyone will read the standard operating procedure, and they'll spend eight hours studying this. And I think instead of that, we're taking a much more consumer mindset, obviously with all of the concern about patient care and patient safety, but keeping things simple so people don't have to think so hard about how to use the tool correctly and not assuming people will read a standard operating procedure to use it correctly.
1: I love that because I think we make uh, excuses in healthcare. We go, hey, it's too complicated. Uh, it has to be HIPAA compliant, patient privacy. We got to do no harm. Yes, yes, yes to all of those, but it doesn't need to be so freaking complex. And, and you know, sometimes I think we... We just don't think it's possible to make it simple.
0: Yes. And the complexity is killing people.
1: It is. A, a, yeah. th- a thousand percent. Even, even just seeing during this pandemic of vaccinating people, that we are not making it easy for many groups to get vaccinated, right? The privileged people like myself went to these mass vaccination sites, but now you have to actually go online to a CVS or a ride aid, make an appointment and go there. If you're undocumented and you don't speak English, you're not going to do that. You know, and you don't have a smartphone. Yeah. You don't have a smartphone, right? You need to, and you're working six days a week at a restaurant. Like you need to go to someplace that's open maybe on a Sunday and that does not require an appointment and you can just walk up and get the vaccine. So it, the complexity is, is killing people. Um, I want to end with a couple of questions. You wrote a great essay called The Best Design Books That Aren't Explicitly About Design. Can you recommend one of those books to people in the healthcare industry that uh, they might want to read?
0: Yeah. So I, one of my favorite professional books of all time is uh, How Buildings Learn by Stuart Brand. So you know, Stewart was one of the founders of the Whole Earth Catalog back in the in the sixties and seventies, and um, he wrote this really great book about architecture. And the the big takeaway is that there's there's low road architecture and high road architecture. And low road architecture is things like the Capitol Building. It, it was built in a monumental way. It's changed very little over time. And you see some hospitals that are built this way, right? Mm -hmm. That's just like, okay, we're going to think about all the possible outcomes and then we will make the best possible building. And then there are low road architecture, things like warehouses that like weren't really thought about that much. They were done cheaply. They were done quickly. But you see them adapted in many ways. And they, you have three warehouses built next to each other. And today, one of them is a condo building. One of them is a factory. And one of them is you became a grocery store. Like you see this in Brooklyn in some places. So it's really interesting when you're building either software systems or hospitals or even uh, service systems to think about how to make a malleable system that doesn't have to predict all eventualities. And I've always been much more drawn towards low road architecture. So I think it's a really interesting philosophical concept
1: how buildings learn. I'm going to add that and buy that today. I haven't read that. So that's fascinating. Uh, And I should have asked you, I should have uh, prompted you for this question first. It's a little bit of a hard one to answer. So this would be our final question. Do you have some thoughts on how we can design healthier lives on uh, either personally or collectively? Well, I do think
0: one of the things, if we're going to really improve public health over time, and I'm talking about mass systems for treating basic diseases at scale. I think we need, what we really need to do is start building more bridges between the public health world, the clinical world, and technology. Like the bridges don't exist. Like I get asked by friends all the time who are like, sick of their jobs at big Silicon Valley brands. And They're like, where do I go to make impact? And I'm like, man, I'm I'm very fortunate that I stumbled into meeting Dr. Frieden, but there aren't opportunities out there very much. And there's not much funding out there. And these are the problems that affect millions of people. And there's like low hanging fruit right there. And it's hard, the big, hard problems, but the public health people don't even know like what types of talent they need to bring in. Mm -hmm the design and technology people don't know what the biggest problems are where they can have actual impact and yeah. There's just lack of knowledge on both ends of the bridge. And yeah. that's something over the next decade or two that I think I'd like to spend t- some time thinking about. And I think you guys are doing that a bit at the the design lab, yeah. uh, which is great. When I was looking at inspiration, it was definitely some of the projects you're working on. So it's a pleasure to finally meet you. But I, I do think that's still just a giant weakness. Yeah. It's weak in America and it's triply weak globally. Mm.
1: Well, thank you for helping to build those bridges between these uh, silos. It was uh, so, so great to finally connect with you, Daniel. Thanks for being on the show.
0: Well, again, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure talking to you.
1: You can find Daniel Burka on Twitter and Instagram. His handle is at D-B-U-R-K-A and reach out to me by Twitter and Instagram I can be found on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U, on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. And remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts. The Design Lab was produced by Rob Labisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and our cover design by Eden Liu. We will see you next week.